0: Mike?
1: Okay. This is a 36-year-old young woman who noted uh, fullness of her upper aspect of her right breast on self-exam and brought it to the attention of her gynecologist on her next scheduled visit. And the patient was sent for her initial mammogram and ultrasound, which confirmed a suspicious abnormality in the area of concern. Needle biopsy was performed and demonstrated carcinoma. As is the case with many of our patients, she was also sent for pre-op MRIs by her surgeon. And there was no evidence of multicentric disease in the involved breast or other abnormalities in the left breast. And accordingly, she underwent the right side lumpectomy and sentinel lymph node sampling. Pathology demonstrated a 2-centimeter grade 3 ductal carcinoma. The two sentinel lymph nodes were uninvolved. The tumor was estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, and her 2 new negative with 1 plus staining. She also came to see me the first time with an oncotype DX recurrence score of 27, which worked out to an 18% risk of relapse with tamoxifen, a high intermediate group. Can you talk
0: a little bit more about her and her life situation?
1: Yeah, actually a very good situation. She has two children. Her oldest is 12, not planning on having more children, so that makes the decision tree a lot easier. Married, her husband attended with her. You know, a good support system.
0: What were her thoughts coming in about the possibility of getting chemotherapy?
1: She had been told that she would probably need chemotherapy. The type score was there. And also her age, she was told that she would probably benefit from chemotherapy. How did she feel about that? She, you know, obviously had the usual reluctances in terms of the immediate side effects, but was really willing to receive whatever I thought was most appropriate.
0: What were you thinking?
1: Well, as is often the case, I offered her potential involvement in two protocols we had available, which was the NSAB B36 of AC versus FEC, and also the CLGB four hundred one zero of ac for four versus taxol for four versus six and she decided although she was very comfortable getting chemotherapy she was uncomfortable being entered onto a clinical trial and we settled on tc regimen how'd she do she did fine she completed her last cycle just very recently and now is going on to radiation and will start hormonal therapy
0: I wanted to use this as an entry point to talk about the data that we're presented in San Antonio looking at archetype and node positive tumors, although hers was node negative. But any comment about the case, Julie?
2: Well, so I would say the low, intermediate, and high-risk groups, as sorted out by genomic health, are different than what we, as an intergroup, decided to choose for the Taylor X, the PACT-1 trial. And you can go on www.ctsu, cancer trialsupportunit.org, and get a PowerPoint slide set on the Taylor X trial that says how we picked the numbers that we are using in Taylor X. And it's based on, you know, 1 to 10 would give you 95% confidence interval around that there would at most be a 5% risk of relapse in that group and blah, blah, blah. So it goes into all the statistics of what we said would be acceptable with good confidence interval. So actually in Taylor X, she would fall into the Give Chemo group. So that's just a little background in terms of I would support that chemo, especially in a 36-year-old, would be indicated. With respect to the node positive analysis, we used the SWOG 8814 data, which was a trial of tamoxifen versus CAF plus tamoxifen. There was the second question of concurrent versus sequential tamoxifen as well. And we got blocks in as many patients as we could and only looked at the sequential CAF tamoxifen versus tamoxifen for purity because the concurrent fell in the middle. And what it showed was that the 21-gene recurrence score assay absolutely could define in the group that got tamoxifen only a better risk group and a higher risk group with respect to recurrence. And that, when you compared it to the CAF tamoxifen arm, that the highest risk group was the one that seemed to benefit from the chemo. Now, Because we only collected first event in the study, we can't report it the way that the 21-gene recurrence score assay reports, which is 10-year distant recurrence despite tamoxifen. So what we're reporting in the San Antonio presentation that Kathy Albain gave was 10 year recurrence rates, and that includes contralateral and it includes in breast recurrence. We didn't, if you had a contralateral cancer or an in breast recurrence, we never collected whether you got a distant recurrence later. So you have to understand. So, that lowest risk group with tamoxifen alone that had good recurrence scores by the genomic health system, which are 18 or less, that group still had a 40% chance of recurrence at 10 years. And what we haven't sorted out is how many. Many of those, at least the first recurrence, were in-breast or contralateral. Our statisticians didn't really want us to present it that way because many of those had distant recurrences that we didn't later account for. So we could pick out a group that did better, low recurrence score you did better with tamoxifen alone and chemo didn't really impact it but they're not doing well enough in my mind to say that we're satisfied that tamoxifen alone is the right answer so i think my conclusion from that is first its hypothesis generating its retrospective and we need to look at this in other studies if we could do a prospective study that would be beautiful if we had a couple more similar retrospective studies that looked exactly the same, I'd have more confidence in it. So tamoxifen alone isn't enough. So is this a group that we should do the extended hormonal therapy? And what would an AI do? What would 10 years of endocrine therapy do? This is a group that we should think about biologics. And also, frankly, to date, the bulk of the data with the 21 gene recurrence score essay was on CMF to get it approved. And now we have a CAS. What would taxanes do to alter this too in that lower risk group? So Although we can pick out a group that does well that's node positive, I think we have to be careful to say, but they're still not doing as well as we would like with tamoxifen alone. And chemo might not alter it, at least CAF chemo, but we should probably think about other strategies.
0: Based on what you saw from this, do you think right now there would be a role for using Oncotype in some women with node positive tumors?
2: So reimbursement aside... I do think that I would find it useful in patients with small nodal burden. I don't think all node positive patients need chemo, but I would like some help sometimes in deciding who I can admit it in. So I have sent it in a patient who had two millimeters of nodal involvement, and we did use that in our decision making. I would tend to think that one to three nodes, you know, strongly ER positive, that's a group I'd like to consider omitting chemo in, and I'd like a little bit of help in, you know, reassurance if the recurrence score came back really low. I think that would help me make that decision. So I do think that there is a group, reimbursement aside, that I actually am at this point in time using that information in.
0: Tom, what was your take on the data that Kathy being presented as well as there was data that was presented from an ECOG
3: study Looking at oncotype
0: and node positive, and how do you put it together?
3: I think one of the important things about Kathy Albain's presentation was it was a study that corroborated the predictive ability of oncotype DX for chemotherapy response, so that in these assays, because we're looking at so many variables, false positives are kind of guaranteed. And we have confirmatory studies for the prognostic powers of the Oncotype DX. The data we had for predicting responsiveness to chemotherapy, we had one trial, and if you were a purist, you could say that was hypothesis-generating, so this is a confirmatory trial, to my mind, in showing that the Oncotype DX can predict responsiveness to chemotherapy and that the patients with the highest recurrence scores had a benefit. Those with the low recurrence score did not have a benefit from chemotherapy. As Julie said, the Low risk patients didn't do that well, but remember these were all postmenopausal patients. So the trial was tamoxifen versus CAF plus tamoxifen or CF followed by tamoxifen, and only the first and third arms were looked at in this trial. But all these patients were postmenopausal. What was looked at was an event rate, and some of those events were deaths from other causes. And it's kind of unclear how many of the events were, in fact, deaths from other causes. I think Ken Osborne asked that question, and we really didn't know the answer to that. So that's an important thing to remember, is that not all of this 40% of events represented recurrences. So I do think there are cases that do not benefit from chemotherapy, and you know if I'm in a situation where I'm questioning whether chemotherapy is going to add to the patient's outcome, I think the Oncotype DX is a reasonable thing to do. The other study that was looked at in node-positive patients, it was sort of a zero to three node-positive trial, adromycin cyclophosphamide versus docetaxel adromycin. There was no difference between these two arms. The patients who had a low recurrence score did very well, that doesn't tell us that they don't need chemotherapy, however, because all the patients got chemotherapy in that trial. An interesting thing was when they looked at the ER-negative patients, they all had high recurrence scores, so if you're wondering if a recurrence score is going to be helpful in ER-negative patient, it looks like not, that they'll have a high recurrence score.
0: Any questions from the group in terms of particularly this issue of the node-positive situation? Yes, yeah, so this is a young woman with a fairly large tumor, so at one time we might have at least considered An anthracycline for this patient. So I'm wondering if you want to say anything about the Dan Hayes data in ER ER-positive women. Also, Julie, Dennis Slayman did a presentation at San Antonio, actually presented stuff that he's presented at our CME meetings a number of times in the last six months with this hypothesis that, quote, there's no role right now for anthracycline's adjuvant therapy, HER2 negative or HER2 positive. What about this increasingly vociferous debate, Julie?
2: So what I would say is that the recent New England Journal paper of the CALGB trial of AC plus minus paclitaxel, which suggests that the group that benefits from the addition of paclitaxel... That trial is not supported by other trials. There are other trials that absolutely contradict it. And you're really asking about anthracycline, but the Dan Hayes trial that you brought up is not supported by other trials. We'll see E1199, the AC followed by four different ways of giving a taxane, which doesn't support that, blah, blah, blah. So that's the taxane. The anthracycline, I don't like giving doxorubicin and I would like to feel confident that I don't need to, but I don't feel that we have definitive data that tells me that uniformly we should just be omitting it and only giving a taxane. I think that the ongoing CLGB study of AC versus paclitaxel four versus six cycles that you brought up earlier might help us sort that out since we're collecting blocks, we're looking at sensitivity to these different agents, et cetera. So I think it's somewhat Murky. I think that what we saw was PETO showed great data that anthracyclines are better than CMF. Now, of course, we've got taxane, so it obscures it. Across the board, whether you're ER positive or ER negative, you know, and he showed us that in the update of the overview. So I think the data's going kind of both ways. And I don't feel confident that all of the data is showing the same thing at this point you know i like the tc regimen the docetaxel cyclophosphamide in a 36 year old i sure wish i had you know anthracycline taxane cyclophosphamide versus the tc so the ongoing tc versus tac trial that us oncology is doing that to me is really important and in that trial i'd like to pick out who needed the a though cuz i bet a lot didn't That's the kind of trial that will help me decide about omitting anthracyclines.
0: Are you using AC alone? No,
2: that should... AC Q3 weekly times 4 is... I don't see any role for that anymore. Multiple regimens have been proven to be better than that.
3: Tom, what's your take on this anthracycline controversy? I think anthracyclines benefit some patients. I'm not sure who they are. In this particular patient, I would give TC probably. I think I'd agree with that. Are you using AC again? I'm not. For how long? When did you stop using AC? A
1: year ago, maybe
0: a year and a half. How about you, Mike? Are you using AC in
3: your practice?
1: Very little. uh, Pretty much switched over to TC about a year, year and a half ago.
3: It's a shame because the TC is sort of killing C40101, I think. (laughs) And uh, And the B36. uh, I think C40101 asks an important question, and I wish we'd get the answer to it, but we may not. Jeff? quick question concerning her she was node negative but her
0: recurrence score was so high would you give her six cycles of tc or no. four if, cycles
3: if she was no positive i would give her ac and a taxane. okay think. getting back to the
0: oncotype issue how do you integrate tumor size and other variables in the node negative situation in deciding whether or not to integrate oncotype julie
2: We don't have good tools that help us do this, but I strongly believe that biology is critical in decision making, but it's got to go hand in hand with stage. So I do think that increasing tumor size in addition to the recurrence score has to have an impact and increasing number of nodes, for example. I would never send the 21 gene recurrence score, essay on a patient with 10 positive nodes, although I'm saying I would with one positive node because I'm viewing that the 10 positive nodes trumps a lot of everything else. So I don't know how to factor it in, though, Neil. I won't send the 21-gene recurrence score assay in a big tumor that's node negative that I want to give chemo in anyway, because I don't, you know, if I know that I want to give chemo and the patients agree to it, I don't want that conflicting data, because I do think that we've got to somehow incorporate the stage, classical staging size nodes with the biology, and it's going to be a bit of a blend of both.
3: Tom, what about tumor size specifically in archetype? Well, in terms of a specific, I guess it's hard to draw a line. Something over four centimeters, I would probably not send the assay, but there may be patients in whom I would. It depends on the particular circumstance. But it would be nice if we had some model that could integrate the clinical and the biologic factors, and maybe we'll get to that at some point soon. I think an important point, though, is, you know, don't do the assay if you're not going to use the information. So you need to decide up front.
2: I believe that tumor size is a stratification for the Taylor X trial so that we might be able to get some information about that.
3: I'm
0: curious, you know, in your own practices, how has Oncotype affected the way you manage node-negative patients, particularly with smaller tumors, Mike? Again, I think, you know, our hands were tied in the past, you know, we couldn't separate out patients who were benefiting, not benefiting. We were offering everybody chemo. The surgeons or, you know, in our case that were using too much chemo
1: and how things changed now in the last four or five years in that regard. Well, I think I'm giving less adjuvant chemotherapy. I mean, when I have a low-risk oncotype score, I put a lot of weight into it, and unless it's a very young patient. People who in the past using adjuvant and line, I might have seen a little benefit, I don't see it with using the oncotype recurrence score. So I think there's a definite subgroup of patients that are not getting chemotherapy now that without that score, I would have.
0: Do you have people that you're giving chemo to who you might not have given it to?
1: Yeah, sure. Probably about 20%, I think, that it's discordant. Paul? We actually have a small study we're doing about how we
0: communicate this information to patients, and it gave me an opportunity to go back and look at all the ones I'd ordered. And my gestalt sense was that I was going to give less chemotherapy, but I'm actually finding it breaks about even that there are patients previously postmenopausal with r positive tumors who come back with recurrence scores in the low 20s, mid-20s, that I actually end up giving chemotherapy that I probably would not have treated There are before. a bunch of studies out there. Anybody can sort of theoretically do a study on what happens to their patients and how Oncotype affects their choice. And I think most of those studies do show kind of going both directions. Any other comments, Jeff? Is there an age in which you guys feel uncomfortable doing Oncotype and omitting chemo, even if it's a low recurrence score? I think the original trial with Oncotype didn't have a lot of younger patients in it.
2: I mean, just being 35 or under is a bad prognostic factor, irrespective of most of the biology that we understand. So, you know, although I'm not sure that that's a strict cutoff in my mind, the younger you are, the more inclined I am to give chemo but maybe it is all about biology uh, you know of the tumor so in a very young woman i would be inclined to give chemo and probably not send the oncotype dx
0: alan she's 36 and she's er positive
3: if she's still menstruating once she's done with her chemo should she have ovarian ablation
2: she should enroll in the soft trial so that we can actually answer the question
3: i think it's a vital question we know there are more side effects if you do ovarian ablation We need to know if there's a benefit.
0: Suppose she does stop menstruating after chemotherapy. At what
3: point, if any, would you start thinking about an AI? in a 36-year-old, I would probably commit to five years of tamoxifen and then reassess her. So she's 41. She still hasn't had a period
0: since she started her chemo. In
3: that situation, if endocrinologically she's postmenopausal, I would consider it but then follow the patient. Julie?
2: I would agree. In a 36-year-old, she has a real high likelihood of having some return of ovarian function, even if it doesn't result in menses, you know, and all. So I would commit to the five years in her no matter, because she has such a high likelihood of having some ovarian function. I'm really nervous about that we are treating some patients with aromatase inhibitors that have some stuttering ovarian function that's not resulting in cycling and menses. And, you know, the average age of study entry on all of the tamoxifen versus AI studies is early 60s. These people are clearly, you know, postmenopausal. I think if you were enrolling a 51-year-old, even if she's been a year since the menstrual period, she's got different ovarian function that's kind of background. It takes a little while before you totally are shut off. I think we need to explore this a little bit more. That recently menopausal person might not benefit as much from an AI.
0: Getting back to the Oncotype node positive, because a lot of oncologists are sending me emails, and even before San Antonio, saying, mm-hmm. you know, see if you can figure out what's going on let me know. Now that you've sort of kind of heard, uh, you know, and maybe some of you, I'm sure you heard a little bit about this before, or maybe you were in San Antonio. What's your take right now? Marianne, what's your take? Do you think that, assuming you could get it paid for, I guess we always think with Oncotype about the patient-doctor situation on the fence. How often do you find that in a node-positive situation, and what situations would you be on the fence?
2: Well, I was at San Antonio, and my take-home after I listened to Kathy Albane was that it really needs to be somebody that has low tumor burden. I mean, I probably won't do it unless there are one to three. Where I think it would be very helpful are the little higher than .2, you know? So those are the ones I struggle with, and I think this would help me.
0: What I was thinking about when I heard this was the older patient where you really don't want to give chemo. Well,
2: I'm a lot more sensitive about the definition of older nowadays. You know? <laughs> One of your tapes said if you were over 50, you were considered old. So. That was the cardiac yeah, thing. I, remember. <laughs> I was listening to that in the car, and I was going, oh, my God. Uh, so I, I think, you know, it's still the biology, and it depends on what kind of a over 50-year-old you are. Do you
0: run into people, you know, I'm sure there must be patients out there even in node-positive tumors who just, you know, scared to death of chemo, don't want to hear about chemo. Jeff, I see you shaking your head. Oh, sure. All the time. And it's usually the people who live alone or in their early 70s, when they come in, they really don't want to hear much about it. It certainly would be helpful for those patients. If I could tell them that with or without chemo, it's a couple percentage points, even though they had two positive lymph nodes. And it just may be a question of time, of when they finally got the biopsy done, when they finally got their surgery done, their grade one tumors, I would like to find an excuse not to treat them.
4: I think for me, a lot of times, the doctors bring certain biases to the table and the patients bring certain biases to the table. And really, with the improvement in the delivery of chemotherapy, the antiemetics, the growth factors, chemotherapy is just a completely different story than it was, say, 10 years ago. So for me, I actually find it more difficult to not give chemotherapy with the concern that if they relapse, there's always going to be in the back of their mind, in the back of my mind, did we leave a stone unturned? And so if I have a, say, a 40-year-old woman who has a 1.8 centimeter ER positive, node negative tumor, I'm almost reluctant to get an Oncotype DX because if it comes back as a low recurrence score, Then I'm faced with a decision. Do I take a younger woman who I have some biology data, which suggests that she's not going to benefit from chemotherapy, but at the same time, do I withhold the therapy where if she relapses, that we would potentially certainly ask ourselves, had we given her chemotherapy? Because some of those patients are going to relapse with anti-estrogen therapy alone.
2: And some will relapse despite the chemo, too, as we all know. I guess a lot of people are struggling. I struggle with exactly what you say. If I don't give the chemo and she relapses, you know, did I cause it? But we all know that that exact woman you described, 1.8 centimeters, ER positive, node negative, has at least, with good endocrine therapy, an 80 to 90% chance of not relapsing. So you'd be treating a lot of women for you know, little gain, you know, so she's much more likely cured with your endocrine therapy, or maybe even without it than not. So I do think that we reached a peak in our country where St. Gallen was basically not finding anybody that we shouldn't give chemo to for a couple of consecutive conferences. I mean, you had to be three millimeters with every feature being right. And that was wrong too. We all know that. So we slid to a point where everybody was getting chemo. And now we're starting to figure out, can we better classify the node negative 1.0? centimeter er positive to help us feel comfortable not giving chemo to the majority of women who will do fine without it and that's where it's the confidence in the test and that's what we need you know the more studies we have and the more long-term follow-up data we have the more confident we'll be that we can accurately pick that person out
0: we do these patterns of care studies all the time in medical oncologists to try to figure out what they're doing we're doing our first one in surgeons And one of the things that we're asking is a question that I asked at the American Society of Breast Surgeons meetings last May. We did a thing there for them, and they had keypads, which is, do you think oncologists use about the right amount of chemo, (laughs) too (laughs) much, or too little? And we've been asking this in meetings of surgeons for you know 10 years or so, and actually it was interesting. The most common answer, and it was specifically in the node negative situation, and interestingly, the most common answer, this was last May, was about the right amount which is in the past, we always saw they used too much. So now this is going to be a national survey. Well, now we'll see what they think and more scientifically. But I do think that our colleagues on the interdisciplinary team now you know, kind of feel with Oncotype that we have a little more science to what we're doing just in it one centimeter, and we got to give chemotherapy. Is that your take, Tom?
3: Yeah, I think so. We all know that we're giving chemotherapy to people who don't need it, and we all know there are patients that we're not giving chemotherapy to who are going to relapse anyway, and we'd like to pick out the right treatment for the right patient. And So now we have a test that helps us with that. It's not perfect, but it's much better than what we had previously, which was based on pretty
5: basic information. I wouldn't just say chemotherapy. It's hormones, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to go back to Halstead's original paper, which is a fascinating thing to read in terms of John Hopkins Bolton. I mean, he had a long-term survival with just, you know, radical mastectomy, understanding everything that's changed. Mm -hmm. But there are people who didn't get anything, and they were alive. And
2: people with a lot of notes. Yeah. yeah. It is fascinating. The one
5: thing I would just like to say is that while we are learning, one of the biggest difficulties we have is the information exchange with our referrers, as well as dealing with community standard. Because Breast cancer treatment is very political, whether you want to deal with malpractice, whether you want to deal with community standards, whether you're doing referral to the physicians and to the families. So part of the thing that I would like as we're doing this is also to getting nice information like the books that can be also used as basis for teaching not only the nurses, you know, but also the referring physicians and the surgeons because they're always a year or two behind us, as well as a person saying, well, mom got sick because of, you know, not the disease caused it, but you caused it, because a lot of our treatment sometimes is much more proactive than perhaps it should be. And so I think that's also one of the arguments we can use with the insurance companies in getting these tests ordered on those patients who are questionable for whether or not they need further types of therapy.
0: It was interesting because, you know, Ian Smith was at our think tank. and I had talked to him the night before. I interviewed him. And, you know, they're pretty conservative in the UK about what they pay for And they don't really use much Oncotype, but they're thinking about it real hard now. And actually, there's even an economic argument to think about it in terms of avoiding the cost of chemo and avoiding the cost of treating relapse in a patient who you treat and avoid relapse in. So I thought it was kind of interesting that in spite of their frugality, they're taking a real close look at Oncotype right now
2: because they might be able to save money by not giving chemo. That's their incentive. Um, There was a very interesting story that's the opposite end of using Oncotype to not give chemo. One of the faculty members said that he was pulled aside by a patient at San Antonio in the hallway, a patient who was node negative and got chemo, And she is suing her physician because she has a lot of symptoms from her chemo, and he did not offer her Oncotype DX, so did not offer her the opportunity to not get chemo. And she wanted this faculty member to be an expert witness in her trial, where he didn't offer it to her, gave her the chemo, and she has symptoms. So it is a different twist on what you were saying about if we used it to not give chemo and they recurred, would we be at risk? It goes both ways.
0: You know, it's so interesting to watch when new data comes out and just see what happens happens. And in breast cancer, a lot of times that's in December. And, you know, we've seen, you know, the AIs, we talk about all these things today, you know, dose dense, when that came out, all the different things, and then how people process it over the next few months or years. And I remember when Soon Paik first did the first presentation, I guess when the archetype was that maybe four years ago, you know, roughly. And there was, I remember that first year after the first presentation, there was you know, people were very skeptical. Nobody was ordering it. Then they did the second presentation the second year. And we kept, we were seeing this in our patterns of care. A lot of people started coming on board, but not most. And then all of a sudden, the following year, everybody started to do it. It's just kind of this sort of sequence as everybody sort of processes stuff. It's such a fascinating thing.